Welcome back to episode 100 of the podcast. If you haven't already listened to part one of episode 100, this is part two with Tom Allen and Matt Tabernet. Tom is the lead sports scientist at Arsenal and Matt is a Basie's high performance specialist. So go and listen back to part one if you haven't already done so. In part one, we covered the areas of research that the lads have been focusing on and also future research. We covered pre-season and the off-season and also how to maximise football fitness throughout a busy season or busy schedule. So into part two, we go into their views on periodization. Um, we cover some of the most flexible factors um, throughout a periodization model and throughout a season. We talk about how to use data to have the greatest impact. And then we also discuss the transition from academy football through to first team. So um, the the initial transition from um, under 16 to under 18 and then through to the first team as well. So I hope you enjoy part two as much as part one. We've had some great feedback on part one already, but here is part two with Tom and Matt. So to move it on, lads, we'll go on to uh, periodisation throughout a season. So again, a much discussed topic. Um, what are your initial approaches, your thoughts on periodisation, some things that coaches need to be aware of? Uh, I think, first of all, there's so many... This I think with football now and periodisation, like when you look at periodisation, it's true sense, like bumper stuff. It's very much around like peaking for a competition like track and field athletics whereas in football we don't just peak for one event throughout a season or so forth or a number of competitions we peak like for a number of competitions week to week or multiple competitions within a week for example so I think it's important that obviously the, what, what approach you take is is, is suited to the, the, the environment you work in the manager you work, work, in, work with and what how they want to train and play and their players to play uh, there's so many different like ways of tactical periodization. There's the tr- traditional British approach, which was used to like Monday, Tuesday in, Wednesday off, Thursday, Friday game on a Saturday. You've got, obviously got the sort of intensive and extensive approach, and then obviously tapering into match day, so forth. So it's only down to the way you feel like you want to train your players and what gets across. Only the players will adapt to that stress. And it, but it sometimes can take time. You obviously see where managers come into these scenarios of different different playing squads, and they've got their way of periodization training. And obviously, you sometimes see quite an increment in injuries because obviously the players, some of them get through, and some of them obviously they, they break along the way. Um, but obviously, they want to get to this ceiling of of what of what sort of load that they can tolerate through through a season. So it it depends. The journey, the way they get to that, can vary extremely. Um, obviously, in, in the rehab stuff that we published, obviously you think about what what you're trying to get towards. So, in competition, you're trying to prepare and taper into an event. So, it would be say if it's match day Saturday, preparing the players and tapering in for intensity. So, you're going to obviously allow recovery for the early part of the week. You're going to get across your physical component, your technical and tactical component, predominantly physical side in the early part of the week, and then taper in with the technical tactical component later in the week. Uh, whereas in rehab, the goal is obviously different. You're not uh, peaking for a competition you're trying to progress the load progressively to the point you want to get to return that player so my one of the stance is obviously communication when the management staff come in first understand their training methodology and the way they want to train what's their match day build up pattern look like and try and understand that first of all 
and obviously try and over time understand that and then obviously try to guide them into a way that might be more beneficial and obviously the way you train within those certain days and the physical qualities that will help them manage to be more successful and obviously success is judged on obviously winning games, making sure players are available and so forth. Anything else, Tom? Yeah, it's, it's all designed around the management. Um, so we as a support staff have to advise them as best as we can with uh, the knowledge we have and, and experience on the players that uh, they're working with. Um, first and foremost, there isn't a right or wrong way. Um, I've worked with managers who have been successful doing a range of different models. Um, I've worked with managers who have done six to seven day run-ins. I've worked with managers who have uh, the match day minus two off, the manager that had a match day minus three off. It, it ranges different uh, uh, to different managers and you just have to find the best way of applying their model um, within the group of players that you have. Um, I tend to to find that uh, a team will mess up on the two days after a game or the two days before a game. Uh, that tends to be your key moments um, where you can probably do a bit too much or uh, too little um, for individuals. Um, however, I've seen things where players have done really big sessions the two days in the lead up to a game and they've been fine and when they go, they're just a little bit tired. Tiredness doesn't always won't necessarily stop you winning a game. Um, it's whether they can work within that fatigue state at, at certain points. Um, there are a few things that I'd probably look at um, within the periodization model. So you'd have to try and check a few things off. Um, so first and foremost, do we expose the players to the required stimulus? So. For their required position, so is it uh, a winger or a centre-back? We have to expose them to what they're going to be required to do. And it might be, for example, the max speed we talked about. Um, they may not do that uh, for eight or ten games, but when they, they do do it, we need to know that they've been exposed to that within a, in, within the environment of training. Um, train them under fatigue. Uh, make sure that uh, we know that they're, they're capable of thinking within the manager's game model when tired um, as well as fresh and you have to do that around certain time points of the season um, build that tolerance to stress so for example when um, you're going to come to a Christmas period there's a chance that you play a game on the 26th um, you then have a rest day on the 27th and then on the 28th you play a game so if you've not got players ready to do that um, you will struggle in that period and we we'll probably start planning for for the Christmas period around uh, October, November time, um, early November, just to make sure that that exposure to that stress has been built up. Um, work players both in the large and small areas. Um, so don't just do uh, extensive sessions every day because you're going to increase your risk to, to injury. Um, shape it up uh, in different ways and like the tactical periodization model does that quite well. Um, then once you've exposed them to these different stimuluses, make sure that we understand that recovery is important. Um, I think sometimes it gets neglected a little bit, especially in the heavy congested period uh, of, of a season. Um, but that's where you'll get your key gains, um, being able to 
expose the players at a higher intensity as well uh, by allowing that recovery. Um, so for me, is uh, intensity trumps volume. Um, teams that fans have said uh, are unfit, it was um, a, a common factor was that uh, the training volume was fine, but the intensity was fairly low. Um, when fans have said that, oh, they're one of the fittest teams we've ever seen, it's because the intensity of training is really high. Um, so that would be a, a big part that I would focus on. Um, and then, most importantly, know the individuals you're working with. So whether you're working with um, a player who has a big injury history, is going to be different to a, a young kid who's come up um, through the ranks and whether your squad is a younger squad or an older squad um, and understand, like we said earlier, how do they respond to certain lows and and then if they respond differently, have we um, kept the information of when they've responded differently previously and what was the outcome from that? So for instance, Ben, if you were a player and um, we've done certain things and you've said, oh, I'm, I'm really sore today, I feel it on... Uh, one of my right hamstring, is that a common thing that you say? Uh, if it's not, then there might be an alarm bell uh, and then we delve further into it. If it's something you say regularly, um, we'll take take into consideration, but we know that's just how your body responds. Um, and it's just knowing what's important and what's not important um, and using the information we've collected previously uh, to determine how we're going to proceed. This might be slightly off topic, but at the same time, I think it, it sort of links in quite well. And it, I think it'll be a good one for yourself, Matt. We, I put um, the uh, opportunity for some of our community members to ask questions. And one of the questions that we got, I've already asked a few of them throughout the episode, but um, one of the questions was, uh, this coach is working with um, academy players. Mm-hmm. And it was how to prepare the scholars or the academy players for the jump up in volume. So going from like two to three sessions a week to suddenly like a full-time program. And I think that, that sort of ties in quite nicely there. So what would be some key things for you, Matt? So you mean the transition state from being, a, say, an under-16 to a under-18 rather than an under-18 to a first-team environment? Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. I think the it's, it's actually when you think about it on the, on the surface – it would seem like, like a really that's a big challenge, and and there's there's so many factors that can influence that because you think 16 is sort of the back end of what you think peak height velocity would be in a in a male adolescent player. They should pretty much have gone through that then. So in terms of risk of obviously you sometimes see some overuse injuries that happen within peak height velocity because load is not dropped and obviously growth and maturation can cause potential risk factors. Just uh, Pars, defects, etc., chin splints, so forth. So it's important to, to, to obviously like profile those players that are coming through that. Have they gone through that? Obviously, is their growth and maturation being monitored and, and through that process? So when they do go from a 16 to an 18, do we know that they've been through that, or can we sort of sort of objectively say they may have been through that because we don't know without obviously taking bone data, for example. So I think the easiest way to do that is I think. When I when obviously left my other club, we were starting to look at like um, GPS data through academy settings and what they're doing from say 14s, uh, 15s, 16s, 18s, 23s, first team. So we're, we're aware of the load demands that across the academy groups. 
So you can sort of see, and then obviously taking basic information such as duration, number of sessions, obviously gives you an indication of where the gaps and where they need to prepare for. So it's slowly, can you use that information, like Tom says, like you would do in a first team setting, to prepare these players for the potential demands they're going to face. And obviously you've got then the challenge as well. Typically at the elite level, teams would use absolute speed zones. Then with a developing player, you've got the, do we need to look at relative speed zones and setting that to the, to the individual because there can be huge differences. So you could, they could be hitting sprint speed, but they're not hitting sprint speed, if that makes sense. So it's understanding these sort of differences that exist between the elite male player, because when we talk about elite players, we're talking about first team pros. And then we're talking about developing players who are obviously 16s, 18s, 23s. They're not elite players yet. They're becoming elite players. Then we've got a tendency to, to label them as elite academy players, but really they're just developing academy players. They're not elite football players yet. So I think you should understand the context and obviously prepare them for the demands of coming up through that. So how does the 18s train? How does the 18s coach want that to his players to play? And then communicating down to that to the relevant member of staff who deals with the 16s group. It's, it's, collecting, it's an information finding, collecting information session where, and then preparing the players for those demands. Would you say that that jump there is a bigger jump than going from 23s to first team? Yeah. yeah. The only difference I would say, from my experience looking at information over a number of years between the 23s, sometimes you get a 23s group that trains a lot harder than the first team group. But then you do see when you look at the internal response to like less running load, like the internal response is much, much higher. So you might get much greater like weekly accumulation, like heart rate exertion, time of about 85% max heart rate in a 23s player doing less running load with the first team, which comes down to that. It's not just about running load. It's around, yeah, you might be, I say, an under 18s player, a 23 player is capable of doing 350 metres of sprint distance in, in, in matches. Then he gets, that's more than what a first team player does. Yeah. Then he gets to the first team and it's almost like, grab it in the headlights because it, the speed and the intensity of the technical demand is so much higher. And it's obviously then that period of adaptation that's required for that player to adapt to that and see how they adapt to it. Because some players find it too, too challenging. So I would say that the jump up, typically from what I've seen from 16s to 18s, is harder than a 23 going to a first team environment. Yeah. Yeah, it's also easy to find that under 16s, under 18s level because if you get past right, you're out for a while. Uh, yeah, and, and yeah, if you, if you've got a serious injury like that, which obviously the, the return to play process is, is quite challenging because it's a lot around communication. And obviously you can do scans and you can do scans at a periodized point to see how the, the fracture's healing. But obviously it's, sometimes you, the fracture can show healing, but the player can still get sensations yeah. when they come back in. So it's obviously managing that player and managing that period of rejoining team training, knowing that they may, may still get some sim- symptoms, which... If you've had that type of injury and you're still feeling symptoms, like for me, if I had that situation, I would feel a bit concerned as a player. So it's obviously managing that time frame in between rehab and returning very, very careful, carefully. And obviously, like the, the demands of growing as well. You've got to think about the, the energy differences as well. Because you've got eating practices in 16-year-olds can be very challenging making the jump to energy demands. I think... Uh, Marcus Hannon did great, some great work on this in his PhD at Everton, looking at the energy demands between the academy groups. Uh, and obviously, it's important to make sure that the groups get an adequate energy, energy intake, not just to fuel the training demands, but obviously growth and development as well. Yeah. yeah. Class. 
And sort of back on to where we're at in terms of in the season, another thing that I thought we could bring up, and I know we've touched on some of these already, were some other, I've, I've wrote down flexible factors. So some things that you have to take into account throughout the season, you mentioned about max speed, that you have to be flexible with your approach about um, max speed exposure. But what are some other things as you're going through the season that sort of jump out for you that you, you have to be really flexible and adaptable with? Strength training. For sure, like strength training in in the first elite first team environment can be very challenging. You can get the scenarios where you have players have come up through the academy and are used to doing that on a on a on a on a, on a weekly basis and and can lift quite competently. Um, then you get obviously players who have come from Brazil, who have come from Spain, who obviously the methodology of doing things is very different, or they may not have done any strength training at all. So obviously it's being aware of that and it's obviously knowing that obviously in the training age, knowing what exercise is appropriate. It's knowing the, the adaptations you're looking to, ab- to obtain and the responses you get from certain contraction modes and then the volume that you do in proximity to when obviously competition is. But it's also knowing that it's beneficial. Obviously we talk about this term robustness, which you can increase the capacity and resilience to handle load. We know that certain types of strength training are important. Obviously, to, to train these qualities so but we know as a consequence of doing strength training and doing certain types eccentrics specifically can cause obviously delayed onset of muscle soreness localized heavy leg feeling but it's knowing that when we've done them over say two or three weeks we get this repeated bout effect which knowing that we don't get the, the same level of soreness and fatigue from doing that type of exercise again mm. so it's keeping consistency through the season and knowing the the effects that each type of contraction mode will have and when we screen our players, obviously knowing that previous injury risks they have, knowing what what they the background they've come from an athlete, whether it be from Brazil, they're not used to doing loads of strength training. So it might be some low-level isometric work for that player around, say, the hip adductors, for example, because obviously we might see that they've got a, um, a deficit left to right and an ab- abduction weakness, which we might be able to work on, which is ultimately going to keep that player available. So it's taking all these different factors in account around strength training, strength training in football, where the, where the match day is, uh, what, what, how much strength training they've done through the season, keeping a log of what players have done, and obviously being really adaptable to that. The player might come in after training and say, I can't do that. I can't do resets at 85% at 1RM example. I can't do that today. So it's being flexible with that and obviously being adaptable for that. And I think being experienced in this environment, working with many different athletes of many different ages, teaches you being how to adapt to and how to obviously get get what you need from the player with that with that level of communication that you need. Yeah, that comes down to knowing the individual as well, doesn't it? You know, communication is crucial, where it's on pitch activity or off pitch activity, where it's uh, nutritional uh, interventions that you have in place for certain players. It's all these things, communication is crucial to get buy-in from players and, and being really concise and having rationale for why you're doing something that you can communicate with the players that if they ask, but in a concise manner that may be different to the way that us three may communicate. Mm. Yeah, and that, that for me was a key learning point early in my career is that the explanation of things is important to a player. Yeah. So I remember having a player go, I mean, why are we doing this? And uh, you explain the reason, and go, well, why didn't you tell me that before? So <laughs> am I doing do a... Something for the players, it'll be right. The reason why we're doing this is because of this. It'll be quick, concise, and then as soon as you've said it three or four times, they understand right. We need to do this because of this. 
to be fair, Arsenal, to give kudos to Shad and um, Barry, uh, I've never seen the uptake of Jim from the amount of players uh, in a football club um, as good as this. Um, it's very much well driven into them. Um, so when I arrived, they were used to doing match day plus two testing. They go through a range of different tests and that was run by Colin and, and Ben uh, Ashworth who, when I first got there, um, and that's continued with, with Jordan Reese taking on the mantle of that. Um, and uh, yeah, with Shannon Barry there, had the, the boys doing the um, doing their gym stuff after a game. So after a game, they'd have minimal exposure of, of different uh, exercises uh, that players needed to do. And um, yeah, uh, the boys uh, respond really well to it. Um, I know it was a big thing of, uh, of when Berger was here as well. He wanted to try and push players where we could, um, make sure we get the exposure in them uh, as often as we could and without affecting the next game um, and, and finding where we can get those those moments in. I think like, like people talk about it all the time, the role of like, strength coaching football, and I think it's an important role, but it has a small yeah. part to play in the bigger picture of, of a football environment. And I think it's knowing the role it plays and how it can be beneficial to, to a manager and a team um, for the fit and healthy players. And obviously, it's very important for the player returning from, from injury as well. Yeah, and that's, I don't think um, enough SNC and sports scientists understand that you're a big part of creating a culture. Um, so we, uh, as um, being very close to players, we can push players a certain direction. So you don't want to... Uh, you want to create an environment where, look, we, we're here to work. We're here to, to develop you, improve you, and um, we are just those people who are around the players. Don't realise how important they are in making the culture of what the club wants it to be. Um, and it just takes a few comments to ruin that culture. Um, and that's where it comes back to that communication. Keep everyone together on the same action plan. Um, and uh, yeah, that's how you can you can really get a club to to. To lift off um, if everyone's on that same that same plan and uh, I guess in, in moments like this of being adaptable it's key that the staff are able to adapt you have to have staff that if something changes last minute and in football pretty much every day something changes last minute you have to be able to think on your feet and go right okay what do we do now it's no good sitting there moaning oh I had this planned it doesn't work like that to you, so, for instance, I'd imagine you've had a, a rehab session planned and suddenly an extra player is thrown in. Yeah. Just, right, okay, now these are the drills that I need to do. Um, the most flexible thing in, in, in a season, it has to be the staff. You have to be flexible in what you've got to do. Um, I mean, you keep your key principles, but you you adapt around what's what's happening around you. Um, I think that's a, a real key learning as uh, part of my journey through my career is that uh, if you don't adapt, you, you, you'll sink. Because that's what I was going to say to you, Matt, as well, when we're talking about flexibility with strength training, is that you have flexibility, but you also have like, have to have like a systemized approach for that as well, don't you? So if you can't do this, you do this. Um, but that that becomes, that comes from sort of experience, doesn't it? Like you're not going to have those systems built in. You're going to, it's a bit of panic initially, isn't it? Like, oh, I don't have enough time or I don't have, I, I can't do these things. Sometimes the scientific base behind like, like the, the strength and conditioning training. Like for example, mm. if you want to prime someone before they go out for training, like traditionally the priming research would say like heavy strength training, like two or three reps, low volume, long rest in between to prime the nervous system. 
but it's all when you look in the research, you can actually like innovate more motor units isometrically than you can concentrically or eccentrically. Mm. I think this is where the prevalence now of isometric trainings come in, and obviously overcoming isometrics are very good for like, like a neurological and for ramping the nervous system, which obviously as well they don't have the the damaging effects of. Uh, eccentric exercise. So I think it's understanding the physiology behind the different types of strength training you're using and the adaptations you're going to get. And I think if, you, if, if anyone's aware of some of Phil Glasgow's work on optimal loading in the terms of from rehabilitation, that transfers obviously across to the fit and healthy athlete. If I'm looking for tendon adaptation, tendon stiffness, obviously it's going to be the same. I'm going to look to train that in a healthy player. There's no different. So it's, an, it's just understanding the principles of, of basic solid science and then practically applying them so people can understand them. I think hopefully that's what we've, we've tried to do in some of the case uh, reports that we've published is the, the, the approach, the optimal loading approach to the different type of injuries, how it's not an all, a one-size-fits-all. So you might get a player who's come from the academy, he's got an injury, who can hip hinge perfectly or whatever. Then you might get a player who's got a really poor training age where you're adding support to get them in these positions. So it's understanding that you can't just go, well, I want this player to RDL, I want this player to RDL, but you might not be able to. Mm. They might have to switch it up and go for a pull-through or something like that. There's a different variation. That it's going to take less load for him to get an adaptation because he's not used to doing, he's not used to that stimulus, where the trained player is going to need more load to get the additional stimulus. Just understanding all these different complexities that exist. So I think underlying physiology, I think there was this big debate around experience and knowledge and so forth. Don't get me wrong, like, the experience you need, but knowledge is crucial to apply that experience. They're really, they do knit together really, really crucially. Definitely. Now I know we're getting on with time here, so I'm going to try and get through this last bit and then let you lads go. But Tom, this is, I think this is one for you, but in terms of data, and it's something we've spoke about quite a lot before on the podcast, how do we use data, the data, all the data sets that are available um, to have the greatest impact. So how do we prioritize? Um, and I know you probably have touched it on it a little bit already, but what, what's your sort of views on that? Um, so it doesn't matter whether you're collecting all the information in the world or you're just collecting RPEs or time training. As long as it's informing your decision, then it's affecting your practice. Um, but I could have the best data set in the world, but if it's not affecting what uh, what we're doing, it's pretty useless. Um, so yeah, first and foremost, find out how the coaches um, disseminate information. So is it a visual? Do they like to see data? Is it a bar graph? Uh, and find a way that uh, speaks to them. So um, for example, uh, a board tabby to death with this, but stress scores, is that something that came from... Uh, I'm stressed already listening to it. <laughs> so Steve Tash had come up with the original idea uh, when he was at Everton. Uh, and he presented something at a conference saying about, okay, we, we have these values that are given to players and we track them um, through a period of time. And I know Darren Burgess, is, he does exactly the same. He calls a Burgess score where he gives a player a score and tracks them over time. Now, I thought there's a way of putting information together um, that could then produce those numbers for us and say, right, this is how difficult uh, or stressful uh, a session was for a player. Now, when I used to re- uh, give that to a manager, um, I gave him a sheet and it was just a load of numbers. Um, and I was like going, right, you've asked how, how um, what the current status is for each player. Well, this is their current status. And he goes, Tom, what we're going to do with this is just a number. 
doesn't help me at all. So then I realised that you have to you have to tell a story. So I've done this in a few presentations where you have to show them the story. So we now have graphs of every individual. Um, uh, so it might be, you can see where their peaks are when they're playing games. You can see that uh, when they're tailing off, if they've been injured, uh, you can see when they've been exposed to certain loads and then you also see in the response to wellness. So you, you have to have a visual that people are easy to understand or you can explain it in a really concise man manner because if you have... Uh, to explain it to a coach or a manager, you may only have five minutes. Um, so it has to be quick and, and easy to, to understand. Um, yeah. And um, yes, yeah, just to find out what your key, um, key information is. So the key information we have at Arsenal will be different to the key information we had at, at Villa. And then I'm sure it's different at Everton, but it's finding out, the culture at your club and what's important to you and your your game model for that manager uh, and building it around that um, and it's just any information you give out to people keep it as simple as possible now we can go underneath the hood and have so much more information going to it and if someone's really interested we can show them so I'm sure Mikhail uh, so Mikhail Shulkin who's our, our data scientist he is an absolute whiz kid with, with numbers Um However, the level that he goes to, I'm never going to give to, to a manager or a coach because that's just going to go way over their head. So make sure that we are the filters um, that provide that information. So it has to be uh, so simple to understand, but also apply the context to that information. Um, so when they have that understanding, that's when it resonates with a manager or a coach. Um, and then you can make it decisions based off that. Now, it's important to understand that data itself is not the be-all and end-all. Um, I've seen uh, practitioners chase numbers. I've seen practitioners absolutely lose their head when the player has done 20 metres of sprint on match day minus one. Uh, it is not the end of the world. Um, these players are, are physical monsters. They can, they can cope with a lot of stuff. Um, but it always comes down to the person um, giving that information. Um, throughout my time, I've worked with so many different practitioners, so many different people. It's the people skills that um, show the difference between a, a top practitioner and someone who can't get their information across. Um, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you can't affect uh, how a person reacts, then it's going to be useless. Um, so it's always comes back the people that make those decisions and the people will interpret that information for, for those to, to make a decision I think to sum it up it's basically data informed practice not data driven practice yeah sum it up. and I think yeah I think the time's gone where you get a match report and it's 13 pages long and your, your manager sees that and goes what's this it's just a pile of numbers only the manager needs to know okay what does it mean how does it affect going into the next game and then into the next weeks? It's the context of what it means for him and how he prepares his players. Not what the match out for. Oh, we did 100 metres sprint more than... Yeah, that's fine. But what does that mean? You need to, It's the meaning. And what does that mean going forward now into the plan? Yeah, and then I've also seen um, some people will give the same report to different managers. Yeah, different people interpret different information. So you need to then speak to 
the manager. So if you have a new manager that comes in midway through a season, okay, boss, what do how do you work? What kind of information do you need? So I've worked with managers who don't want to report, they just want to chat to you. Okay, what do I need to know? I've had managers um, who want to see raw numbers uh, and I've had managers who want uh, to see a bar chart and and just sit with them, explain it and, and what do we need to do. Um, so you need to adapt and find out what's key for that that person who's, uh, who's steadying the ship because at the end of the day, we're all trying to um, find the best ways of, of winning a football match. No, I'd echo, I'd echo the, what, you, what you said, Tom. Well, Lads, this was absolutely class. I think there's loads in this, and uh, I know we're getting towards Tabs having to do his first night feed, so we better uh, <laughs> we, we better wrap it up there. I think we've covered everything that we set out to do, um, plus more. So, really appreciate you both coming on. Do you want to just give us a quick heads up on where people can either drop your line or just keep a, an eye out for what you guys are up to? Yeah, um, you can message me on LinkedIn or through Twitter. Uh, Twitter's talent underscore five. Um, I am really bad at getting back to people because I have so many people who ask questions. I do get back to you. It might be six months down the line, but I will get back to you. Uh, he doesn't answer the phone when I'll ring him. So. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we're very open. So it's if someone has an idea or... Um, can see an issue with what we've discussed about um please uh please come and contact us we've um like a big thing that both myself and Tabza we'd like to hear from from other people so I know Arsenal we try and get um get other companies in so for instance uh we've had Apple come and tell us right this is how we would interpret the information that you have this is an easier way of doing this this is the technology we would use um we've had NASA's speak to us about um, nutrition anyone if you think you have something please tell us and we'll look at it and and we'll discuss it yeah no likewise linkedin or at matt taberner um suppose as well like any research if anyone's interested in in research like as well um around any of the stuff that we've talked about and fancies uh, getting involved to have a discussion or a chat like we're both open-minded both like to have discussions around how we can in- through practice and help educate other practitioners as well because it's obviously us giving back something we've been privileged to have this experience in this environment so if we can help other young aspiring sports scientists to come through and be better at their jobs then hopefully that's what we can we can try and do class well lads listen thanks a lot for coming on and giving up your saturday night really appreciate it and uh hopefully we'll get you on again before episode 200 <laughs> <laughs> cheers lads no worries thank you for listening to episode 100 I really appreciate the support we've already had loads of messages from people that have listened to part one already I'm really excited to get these two episodes of episode 100 out to as many coaches as possible huge thank you to Tom and Matt we recorded this episode at nine o'clock on a Saturday night and we've all got young kids. So um, if you watch the video version, you can see us gradually falling lower and lower in our seats. But I really appreciate the lads giving up the time. Um, I said at the very start of part one that I wanted someone on the podcast that fits within our philosophy. And these lads absolutely um, do that. The, the egos are in check. They're willing to discuss any topics really openly. And I encourage people, they did mention in the episode, to reach out. 
and um, challenge them as well because I, I'm sure they'll be happy for people to reach out and discuss certain areas or different ways of working. That's why they are the quality practitioners that they are. So big thank you to them for coming on and big thank you to you guys for listening. In terms of takeaways from this one, because it was such a long episode, I was trying to um, nail it down to just a few, but I just made a few notes on some things that stood out for me. Um, The individual response to load is something that stood out straight away. I think that was in part one. Um, I think it was Tom that mentioned running plans being devised under the vision of the management. And that was something that was a message throughout the episode that um, the uh, program comes down from the top and then we support um, those practitioners at the top in with what in our in our role and what we do so and that fits in with that working under fatigue was another thing that the lads discussed and then something that's come up again time and time again on the podcast no right or wrong way for periodization there's plenty of ways of doing it um, but it's just looking at all the different methods and all the different ways of working and see what fits within your model and then Tom again spoke about two days after and two days before a game, coaches making the most common mistakes, or that's what he sees as coaches making the most common mistakes with their players. So they were my takeaways. I'm sure there's plenty in this one. So please reach out. Um, Like I say, I've split this episode into two parts. There's just over an hour in part one and um, around about 30 minutes in, in part two. So absolutely loads of content in this one. It'd be great to hear from you and see what you took from the episode. Big thank you to every single coach and practitioner that has come on the podcast so far. The first 100 episodes have absolutely flown by. Um, and when I reflect on some of the people that we've had on the podcast and some of the information and the content that's available now on those episodes, I'm really, really proud of um, what we've developed. I'm really looking forward to the next 100 episodes and the people that we can attract onto the podcast. So um, if you've been on the podcast, huge thank you. If you listened and you subscribed to the podcast and left us a review, huge thank you to you as well. Go and give the lads a follow. They're on Twitter at Talon underscore five. So T-A-L-L-E-N underscore and then the number five for Tom. And then Matt is just his name. So at Matt Taberner and Taberner is spelled T-A-B-E-R-N-E-R. Big thank you again for listening. Like I just said, I'm really looking forward to the next 100 episodes and we will speak to you in episode 101 next week.